You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti coming to you from our home studios. Well, we recently attended the American Bar Association's annual meeting in Chicago, Illinois, where we got an inside look at their meetings, presentations, and special events. While there, we met with the leadership of the ABA, as well as high-profile thought leaders and presenters. The following set of interviews covers the ABA Presidential Commission on the Future of Legal Services hearing, which was an event dedicated to exchanging ideas on how to close the justice gap and make legal services more accessible. To get things started, let me introduce Mr. Tom Bolt. Well, I'm the uh, chair of the American Bar Association's Law Practice Division this year. I'm an attorney with Bolt Nagy, a full-service firm in St. Thomas, uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, we've met Tom on the air before when we covered ABA Law Practice Division's meeting in San Diego, California, and of course, ABA's mid-year meeting in Houston, Texas. So I thought Tom would be a good person to ask about the purpose of the commission. Here's what he had to say. Well, I think the commission is dealing uh, primarily uh, with the access to affordable legal services. And uh, so, you know, that certainly is a critical area. But the law practice division, and and the reason for my uh, appearance before the commission was to advise them of what the American Bar Association Law Practice Division was doing. And we have established uh, a law practice futures initiative which is going to assess and review trends, uh, approaches, technology, and tools to facilitate the legal profession's adaptation uh, to change so that we remain viable, relevant, and competitive and provide leadership and a strategic, systematic response of the division. I mean, what, I mean there's so many areas that uh, beyond just access to legal services that uh, deal with the day-to-day practice of law that are not being dealt with. I mean, we uh, had the opportunity uh, some uh, 15 years ago with Ethics 2000, and uh, the, you know, I'm sad to say that, I mean, I was a part of the House of Delegates uh, that we turned a deaf ear to a lot of the issues, uh, whether it's um, alternative uh, business structures, whether it's multi-jurisdictional uh, practice, whether, you know, a number of the areas have come up before, and uh, the House of Delegates turned a deaf ear to that. And now we are, you know, looking again at those various issues in the law practice division. Next, I talked to Tom about technology's role in increasing access to affordable legal services. He acknowledged that technology does play an important part, but he added that there are more important changes coming from the realm of ethics. Here's more from Tom. Well, yes, I mean, certainly technology has a major role to deal with, uh, you know, uh, providing access to uh, affordable legal services, which the commission is dealing with. But also, I think that uh, there are various ethical issues that uh, we're talking about, and that's why we have got uh, this group in the law practice divisions, uh, law practice futures initiative, you know, that is working on these issues, but also Bob Hershon, who we have here is also going to be participating uh, with the ethics and professionalism, you know, committee of the law practice division. And and they're going to be looking at the need for uh, various uh, changes to the model rules. And uh, I think that that we're going to, we're going to see a sea change in uh, the regular, 
regulation uh, of the practice of law, I believe, over the next two to three years. I think as soon as uh, San Diego, I believe that we will see initiatives coming out of the ABA's commission, possibly coming out of the Law Practice Division uh, initiative. Immediate past uh, president of the ABA, William Hubbard, said that it is uh, a uh, that the earth is shifting under our very feet, and I agree with that completely. Next up, we talked to Mr. Robert Hershon from the Standing Committee on the Delivery of Legal Services. Here's Robert. Hi, I'm uh, the professor from practice at the University of Michigan Law School. I also am special counsel to developments in the legal practice uh, to the law school. Additionally, I am an internal counsel for the law firm Verrill Dana, a regional law firm in New England, uh, focusing on management issues. I think when many of us hear the word innovation, we naturally think technology, but that's not always the case. Robert's presentation was interesting because it focused on non-tech ways to improve and lower the cost of legal services. We now cut to Robert. Uh, Correct. I did not focus on technology, although technology is certainly going to be a part of the solution. Um, Some of the non-technological approaches include, for example, unbundling with legal services. As Tom previously mentioned, a lot of what lawyers can or cannot do, I should accent the cannot do, is determined by model rules and the specific rules adopted by the specific jurisdictions. It used to be that if you were going to represent a client, you represented the client in that entire matter. You couldn't say, for example, in litigation, I will handle your deposition, but when it comes to trial, I'm not going to handle the trial. You could not say, for example, I will draft the complaint to get this case going, but then that's it. Now, many jurisdictions allow the unbundling of legal services, allow you to help an individual client, and the result of all of that is a much smaller fee. Additionally, there's been a lot of growth of self-help centers. Self-help centers now provide assistance to approximately 3.7 million people per year. Uh, 20 years ago, that figure was close to zero. More recently, the committee that I'm an advisor for, the Delivery Committee of the American Bar Association, has worked to organize and advance legal incubators. These are innovative approaches to help with the improved engagement and the better allocation of resources and hopefully to improve access through simplification. Uh, There are self-help centers. There are online court sites. Uh, There are kiosks in many, many jurisdictions that will provide forms and a very variety of other approaches to help people in their legal matters and assisting them either to handle these matters with very little legal help or to help connect them with lawyers. And lastly, as, as far as this issue that, you know, the access to justice, access to lawyers, as you can see, you can have access to justice without necessarily having access to lawyers through these self-help and form centers and kiosks. But we also recognize that there is a maldistribution, if I can use that term, of lawyers. It seems like we've got way too many lawyers in the aggregate, but not enough lawyers when we talk about the unmet legal needs of individuals. And that can be because of geography, and a number of states are 
are looking at their rural areas and seeing that uh, there are populations that just are not being served at all by lawyers and are trying to create access to those rural areas, as well as focusing on areas of uh, within demographics of individuals, pockets of individuals, I should say, who just do not have any type of access to legal help. Now, so far, we've heard about unbundling and self-help, but Robert also talked about alternative ownership models for legal practices. More specifically, he referred to ownership models that would allow non-lawyers to own an entity that engages in the practice of law. If model rule 5.4 suddenly jumps into your head, you're not alone. Every state in the United States prohibits this type of ownership. Despite that, other countries have introduced it as a way to lower the cost of legal services as well as increasing access to the same. Here's what Robert had to say about these alternative ownership models. I think we're going to have to study it, and that is um, what Tom, again, was referring to. The specific rule is there's a model rule 5.4, which has been adopted in some form by every single state, every jurisdiction. And model, five, model rule 5.4 is the professional independence of a lawyer. And in that rule, it provides that a lawyer cannot form a partnership, share the profits, uh, so to speak, of uh, the entity with non-lawyers. Uh, the United States is uh, very, has had a long history. I guess I'm a little less optimistic than Tom has stated that he thinks there's going to be change. I think their change in this area will be very slow. Uh, it may come, but I'm less optimistic than Tom when he thinks it's going to happen within the next six months to a year. I think it'll take a lot longer if, in fact, it does come. We now move our conversation to the changing roles of legal professionals as we move forward into a new era. This is ABA delegate Chris Simponia. I'm an ABA delegate. I uh, have my own firm in Washington, D.C., primarily in practicing a litigation uh, boutique office. Uh, also, I'm immediate past president of the Bar Association of the District of Columbia. In his presentation, Chris talked about the migration of attorneys from a big firm model to smaller firms and how that trend could be beneficial to the client. He also discussed the evolving roles of paralegals and why that might be good for the practice of law. Here's what Chris had to say. As we migrate to more smaller boutique firms, uh, I think some of it's happening just practically because many of the uh, large firms aren't uh, sustainable. And the benefit to the client, though, is that they have access directly to the partner uh, and not to, say, a myriad of other individuals that may not be as experienced uh, with a certain, with the case. Uh, but so the cost then uh, may be coming down to some degree of um, individuals working on the case. So the benefit uh is that these smaller offices can then hopefully fulfill the needs of the client more uh, fully uh, than others. I think uh, another speaker who wasn't um, here who spoke on that podium as well brought up uh, the fact that there's generalists and how a generalist can help a client uh, fix a problem they have so you become more the problem fixer than just uh, a certain specialist in an area and that benefits uh, the individual. So uh, that's, that's how I'd address, address that, and then that would lead me to the second area, which was paralegals 
and how they've helped fulfill that. They can assist in all practice areas. They can increase in the value of legal services, and you know, of course, they can better serve the clients. So that you know, that follows into smaller offices that could be more efficient. So a paralegal, uh, some jurisdictions are allowing them even to go to court on some very minor matters, but they have a lower rate, uh, and many of our services are deliverable you know, without really the need for super intensive legal review of documentation, whether it be, say, a real estate closing or even some minor family law matters, but things that the average person faces, which is, I think, an area where the law is being challenged because, or legal practitioners are being challenged because uh, some of the statistics are, I think, as I've heard, that there's 70% of the of the individuals get uh, in the U.S. get their legal services from a family member or not even a lawyer. Uh, so maybe that's because of the cost and and because their problems aren't big corporate merger type issues. So, but a paralegal is is very adept uh, at handling some of the quote smaller matters that would be very helpful. Uh, they're good at witness and client contact as well. Uh, you know, I think is generally, as I said, a lower quote income case that uh, an office may not be able to handle on its own with lawyers. Now they can handle with a paralegal involved because they don't have to bill at the rate that uh, a law a lawyer would. So I think the two issues will fit together that I brought up, and they're more of a practical. I mean, I think my discussion points from more of a practical standpoint because as immediate past president. I can see, and, and mine is a voluntary organization, many lawyers joining the organization as a way to network because they're losing, well, they're not in larger firms, they're, they're changing uh, in careers, and I can, they're changing, I'm sorry, not the career, but changing their, their jobs. So I can see it flush right through the, uh, or I did see it flush through the uh, organization I was president of. Last up, we talked to Mr. Fred Heaton, who's the former president of the Canadian Bar Association. During this interview, Fred talks about the similarities between their legal system in Canada and ours in the U.S. The Canadian Bar Association recently completed a client-centric report called the Legal Futures Initiatives, and in it they found many revelations that they thought would be not only useful to their legal system, but to ours as well. And of course, Canadians being Canadians and in their neighborly fashion, they decided to share it with us at the ABA annual meeting in Chicago. We now cut to my interview with Fred, previously recorded. Well, joining me now from St. Laurent, Quebec, we have Mr. Fred Heaton. He was also with us at the uh, Chicago ABA Annual Meeting. Welcome to the show, Fred. Thanks, Lawrence. Great to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. So before we get started, we want to learn more about you. Where do you work and how are you involved with the ABA? Fantastic. So I, uh, I'm in-house counsel with Air Canada here in uh, in Quebec, in uh, the suburbs of Montreal, Quebec. I uh, look after the labor and employment law team here, and I recently wrapped up my term as president of the Canadian Bar Association, the, uh, the companion organization north of the border for lawyers, the companion to the ABA. And uh, with my work with them, I uh, chaired the CBA's Legal Futures Initiative, uh, a look at the future of the profession, how we might uh, encourage more innovation within the legal profession, what we might do to change the regulation of the profession to help uh, help us deliver services better, and how we might educate lawyers differently. Uh, that work, uh, as uh, I suspect your listeners may uh, be aware, sounds like a lot like what the ABA is up to. And uh, so we've been working very closely with the uh, ABA uh, Commission on the Future, 
And we've been delighted to uh, share with them what we've learned, learn from them. And uh, we're just thrilled to have the opportunity to join them in Chicago there a few weeks ago. Well, and, uh, you know, they've got a lot of these uh, interview videos online right now. So I'm just going to go ahead and call the name out one more time. It's the ABA Presidential Commission on the Future of Legal Services Hearing. And uh, there's a lot of videos there that feature many of the uh, experts and thought leaders in this uh, in this department. So check it out. Uh, but Fred, you know, you opened up your uh, your speaking event with a little bit of a chide against American sports, and I got to call you out on it. So you're talking about the Canadian dominance when it comes to the Stanley Cup, and that remark resonated with me. I had to look it up. I was like, that cannot possibly be true. And I looked it up, and sure enough, it's true. Canada has won more Stanley Cups than the United States teams, and I was just shocked. But I would also like to point out because it's also equally true. For the last 21 seasons, Canadian teams have been shut out of the Stanley Cup. In fact, it's not been since 1993 that the Montreal Canadiens were the last team to win. And last time I checked, I'm not sure the people of Quebec actually think they're from Canada. So, Fred, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, certainly they're part of Canada, Lawrence. And you're absolutely right with those statistics. And uh, every spring as the playoffs begin, there's great angst within Canada as to how many Canadian teams are going to make it into the playoffs. Last year was a great showing. And uh, it's a great source of, uh, I think, friendship between our two countries, too, that we have so much back and forth. Canadians take a little little comfort from the idea that even though there are so many American teams in the league compared to Canadian teams, there are still more Canadians than Americans playing the game. So we, uh, we take it that way. But for your listeners, it was... Uh, <laughs> That was a little fun moment when I was uh, with the ABA Futures folks because I was trying to convey uh, some of the success we've had. And, of course, everything in Canada is really about 10% the size of the United States, population, economy. Just about everything we do seems to be so much smaller. So the numbers I was going to be showing everybody, I thought, well, gee, this isn't going to impress much of anybody. So I reminded them that, yeah, we're 10% of everything, except when it comes to hockey and geography, are the only two places where we <laughs> seem to have a leg up right now. But I suspect uh, you... You might feel some of the same way. I see our Toronto Blue Jays here doing fairly well these days, so perhaps uh, the tables <laughs> will turn here shortly. <laughs> well, I'm not going to talk about that because I, I live in Denver, Colorado for the most part, and uh, our Rockies are not doing so well, so I won't come into that. But I thought very brave, you know, coming to Chicago, especially after the Blackhawks win and talking about that. But I digress. So <laughs> let's get to it. So your, your Legal Futures Initiative report, uh, you talked about this during your presentation, but I want to learn more about it. So can you give us like generally what was it about and then what were some of the things that you learned? Sure. Uh, so uh, we learned a lot. And uh, if for the folks who are listening, a lot of that material is available on the CBA website. So it's the Canadian Bar Association website, cba.org. You can go through to the Futures page uh, and you'll see there um, – of course, our final report, which is about a year old now, a little over a year old, it contains a synthesis of our analysis of what we learned, as well as the 22 recommendations that we put out there for discussion as a way to try to help the profession uh, do better. We started with the premise when we set out on this work that, uh, well, really two premises. First one, change is happening. The change that's happening is not likely to reverse itself. Uh, we thought about trying to put that internet thing back in the bottle. It didn't look like that was a very good way to spend our time. The other thing we realized, or the other starting point really was a belief that Canadians, and I think the same could be said about our friends south of the border, Canadians deserve and expect a vibrant and relevant legal profession. 
we owe that to them. And that it comes that manifests itself in many different ways because, of course, we're self-regulated. Well, that's in part because we sort of struck a bargain that said we will do certain things and we will protect the public from certain things. Uh, but we got to live up to that bargain now. We have to deliver services in ways that resonate. We uh, believe that if we took a look at where we could do a better job, there would actually be opportunities for lawyers to do more for their clients, to grow their practices. And we were quite pleased that when we embarked on the research, that was proven out. We found that there are great segments of the market that are underserved or not served at all. And with a little innovation, we think we might be able to help open that up, help open that up both for lawyers, but also, more importantly, for their clients. And we, we feel very strongly that if lawyers are not involved in sorting out legal problems, the outcome is going to be suboptimal for the client. Typically, either the problem just doesn't get resolved or somebody takes matters into their own hands. And in 2015, in the Western world, that just doesn't, neither of those sound like really acceptable options. So the report that we issued, uh, and I'd invite your listeners to, to take a look and, and send us their thoughts about it, um, is supported on that website with a bunch of research that we did. We started out by asking some of the thinkers in the field to uh, update some of their work. So you'll see on our website some updates from Richard Suskin, from Adam Smith Esquire, uh, we had some folks look at the state of the Canadian market uh, to supplement those two voices from Scotland and the United States. We uh, took a look at some case studies of innovators who are doing things differently. The one piece of research that really uh, jumped out for me, though, was when we hired a public opinion research firm to look at what client expectations are these days. And that, too, is up there, and I find to be a very rich source of, of inspiration for how we might do things differently. All of that got weaved together, and we, uh, we set out with our recommendations, and we're now on the road trying to help people understand how we got to those conclusions and see if we can't uh, help the profession do a better job of, of what we, uh, we all hope to do for our clients. Well, were you finding, I mean, because, you know, obviously we share a border, uh, Canada, the United States, but, uh, you know, also kind of similar in, in a lot of cultural ways. Are a lot of the deficiencies in the American market also shared by the Canadian market when it comes to the law? Yeah, absolutely. In my conversations with my friends south of the border, there's an awful lot that we have in common. I think on the, the big family tree of legal systems, we're probably the closest cousins we each have. And that's meant that some of the challenges we face are very similar as well. So hence why we're so delighted to work with the ABA on this stuff. Um, I think there's a lot we can learn from one another. But I suspect many of the things we talk about in our report, much of the research that we commissioned for our report, um, finds a parallel uh, in, in the the United States as well. I'm sure there will be differences, but probably some helpful uh, bits in there as people in the United States think about how can we better serve those people that uh, that are, have expectations, uh, rightful expectations about the legal profession. Okay. Yeah, that was something you uh, discussed was the, the client expectations, kind of taking that perspective when you, when you commence this report. But uh, in reading that, and as an attorney, were you surprised by some of the things that you saw? Uh, in some ways, yes. And, and uh, I think that's where we got the most value out of that work. So, for example, we did hear that uh, clients would prefer to pay less for legal services. You didn't need the CBA <laughs> to go and do a bunch of research to conclude that. I, and it's a little like the polling when they ask, you know, would you rather pay fewer taxes or would you like to have a raise? You need to put these things in context. And so when we got into that conversation with clients, uh, we pushed it a little bit further to see, so where does this go? And a couple of things did emerge. There is a real thirst for value. There's a real thirst for quality. 
the clients expect that what lawyers delivered will be of a very high quality. It's very reliable. This was something that concerned them a great deal when we spoke, for example, about services that are online. They wanted to find a way to have some comfort, a little like all those different pay systems when you buy things online now. People want to have that comfort that it's secure what they're doing. And, and in our world, that's going to translate into comfort that it's a quality service that's being delivered. Something for us to grapple with. How could we provide that kind of assurance to folks? In the past, of course, the facts that you and I were members of the bar was enough. It seems we need to find some other ways to convey that to folks these days. A couple of other things jumped off the page, though, that I think really give us a lot to chew on. Well, the first one is, not only did they say they'd like to pay less, they also said they wanted to pay a predictable price. And when we probed that, we found people who would say, well, I would call a lawyer, but I don't because I don't know where the bill is going to stop. They might actually pay the full price of what it is you're going to offer them, but they're not calling just because they don't know how much it will cost in the end. If you step back from that for a moment and, and think of it as a business proposition, you know, your managing partner's got to be pulling their hair out. This is something we can control. We set these prices. We chose to bill largely uh, on the hour. That's what's standing in the way of this. This isn't something imposed on us. So great opportunity if we can find a way to help people uh, put a predictable price on things. Now, that takes me to another branch of this on the education, which is, of course, very few law schools, if any, have taught us how to do that. So where we see some opportunity for the bar associations is, is helping our members First of all, understand that expectation, understand what alternatives exist, and then how do you develop out of your own practice with the kinds of services you're offering, with the kind of experience you've had in your community, a fixed price that is appealing to the client and still keeps enough money coming in that your business is sustainable. There are ways to do this, but we need to bring in some management techniques to do it. Similarly, and in a related point, clients talked about wanting us to use process. This was something where we see sort of the Facebook effect, that people want to pop up and contribute whatever's on their mind at any given moment and be part of the larger discussion. That can be kind of disruptive to how lawyers work. But again, it's kind of like the internet back in the bottle. We can't sort of push back and say, oh, well, you can't. The real helpful part is, though, if you break what you do into a process, all of a sudden you're going to figure out the cost of each step of that process a lot easier. And back to that predictable price, now you're starting to see how you can build a budget that works, where you can bring down costs and still make a margin. So a lot of these things were interconnected. And as we probe beyond those initial reactions, we found, I think, some helpful material for, uh, for our members and helpful opportunities for the likes of the bar associations. Well, you're kind of hinting at it right now, and it's a great segue into my next question. Uh, you had a quote, and I love this. You shared it with us. Uh, you said, it seems like the legal profession missed the industrial revolution. And so um, I'm hearing, you know, clients want us to use better processes. They're, they're uh, you know, thirsty for value, want predictable prices, but they also want to pay less. And so, you know, obviously this was to learn, uh, this, this report was to learn more about uh, the legal profession, how it can be improved. So taking that knowledge um, that, that you absorbed there, uh, what actions should lawyers and bar associations and, and law schools, it sounds like, uh, apply towards making that happen? Mm, fantastic. That's exactly where we're at in our work now. So the uh, I would first say, take a look at what the ABA Commission is doing and follow it closely. Keep an eye on, on what your friends north of the border are doing as well. And those will give you, I think, the macro perspective on what's happening here. But what do we do from there? Now, once, once you're a lawyer who maybe has taken the time to think about that, how do, you, how do you bring this to life in your practice? Well, one of the things we put out for our members was a, a guide to thinking about strategy in light of the new realities as we've uncovered them in this report. 
thinking about our recommendations and how they could apply. And I think most lawyers are going to have to spend a little more time now thinking about, well, where is it that I want to play in this marketplace? Where can I add the greatest value and how can I deliver that in a way that is valuable to the client? I think there's going to be a need to supplement that legal training that we received with other kinds of learning on the one hand and supplement it with other professionals on the other hand. So let me take those in turn. We heard loud and clear, back to that quality point, the legal training we get in law school today is very important to what we do. That's the core, and that cannot be disturbed. We still need law graduates with a solid understanding of the law and legal reasoning. But we need to bolt on, if you will, to that education, a whole lot of other things. And those things will vary by practice type, but are probably things best taught perhaps by other faculties. Think of social work if you're involved in family law. Think of some of the management school, finance kind of things if you're heading into a corporate practice. Some sciences perhaps if you're heading into environmental or IP kinds of things. Not to replace the other professionals we work with, but to better understand how they work. That brings me to the other point about new professions who are going to emerge. We anticipate that a little like the medical profession, you're going to see a whole host of new professionals emerging. If you think back a generation or so to walking into a hospital, there were doctors and nurses. Uh, Today, there are a whole host of other designations who are going to be involved in, in helping you when you get there. And we anticipate something similar is going to evolve in law. And there, too, we're going to have to supplement the traditional legal education with a better understanding of the technology that's out there, a better understanding of how other professionals who can help with process and sales and marketing and the delivery of the service work so we can engage with them in a more meaningful way to actually meet those uh, client expectations. So I think there's a real role for law societies, for bar associations to get involved in helping with those bolt-on pieces by partnering with others. And I think it's going to be incumbent on us, and Andy Perlman of the, C, of the ABA Commission, I think, speaks quite eloquently on this. It really is a, an ethical kind of obligation on us to go out there and understand these things, make sure we have a solid grasp of the potential that lies with, uh, within the technology available so that we really do deliver the best value possible for our clients. Well, Fred, I think you're reading my mind because uh, actually that was getting into my last question here, and that's tools. So, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, some of these problems and that you've observed and some of the client expectations. And then we're also talking about getting towards certain actions. But I think in between point A and point B there, uh, you need some tools to kind of assess where your practice, your firm is at. And I think you did talk about some of the tools that you're trying to implement. Could you share that with us? I'd be delighted to. And, and uh, in fact, that's very much where we're putting our focus now, is to bring more of those to uh, to our members. So we will be working with a number of the uh, of the groups within the Canadian Bar Association, which are very much in parallel with the ABA, the different sections and forums and, and, and branches and so on within our structure to think about how can we develop tools specific to various different practice types. So we have uh, some groups who have approached us about wanting to develop more robust templates and perhaps even using technology to help you know populate some of these templates as a way to save some time. I mean, certainly there are some providers in the marketplace doing that kind of work already. We can anticipate more tools, I think, around budgeting, around process management, about process analytics that are going to be coming online. We are going to be releasing, I believe, in the next couple of weeks. It's coming together to be to be released in September. A guide for young lawyers. Of course, those who are likely to experience this in the most dramatic ways through their careers, what's coming at us. Helping situate them. Helping them think about where, where they fit within all of this and where there are some opportunities that may appeal to them in terms of their practice. We're going to be uh, rolling these out over the next few months. 
and uh, I look forward to uh, to a continued uh, positive reaction to this. Um, so far, the stuff that we have put out there, whether it's the recommendations or the the initial tools that we've uh, that we've launched, uh, have been very well received. Uh, some of our recommendations were contentious, but we set out to be bold, and we think that they're supported by the the, the uh, research and analysis that we did, and we we look forward to having a constructive conversation about them. But on the whole, the reaction to these tools and the recommendations I found to be uh, be uh, very positive. Uh, there is a real thirst, we think, out there for this kind of work. Even the kind of volume we've seen on our website suggests that there are a number of lawyers who are quite keen to think about how they might th- do things differently. And so uh, as these tools roll out, I hope we'll be able to equip them to, uh, to, uh, to live up to the, uh, to, to the expectations of our clients. We hope you enjoyed this series of interviews covering the ABA Presidential Commission on the Future of Legal Services hearing. If you like this program, we have more like it on our special reports channel, which can be found on our website, LegalTalkNetwork.com, or in iTunes. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.